When we established an online shop as part of our Better Burma nonprofit, we chose to prioritize working with artisans from disadvantaged and vulnerable backgrounds because we know just how hard it can be to survive at the margins of society in Myanmar. We work with people with disabilities, mothers who've contracted HIV AIDS, civil servants on CDM, ethnic and religious minorities, and more. Your purchase there will not only go to support their livelihood, but also our wider humanitarian and media missions as well. Please take a moment to visit our shop, alokacrafts.com. That's aloka, A-L-O-K-A, crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, dot com. Alokacrafts, one word, dot com. With that, let's get into our show. Welcome to this episode of Insight Myanmar Podcast. I'm here with the author Brian Klingborg, who has recently published a book, a novel. Part of it takes place in Myanmar, which we'll be talking about. So, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to join us and chat a little bit here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so before we get into the particular book, Wild Prey, where part of the book takes place in uh, post-coup Myanmar, I should mention, uh, let's talk about the series where this takes place. This is a, a, a suspense series, detective series, involving a deputy chief inspector, Lu Fei, uh, a, a, a Chinese detective. So tell us a bit about what that series is, who the main character is, and how and your, your background and interest and why and how you started a series around this character. Sure. So the uh, series is currently a trilogy. The third book just came out. It's called The Magistrate. And um, the series is set in the north of China, primarily near Harbin City, which is uh, not so far from the Russian border. Uh, very cold place. Sometimes it's called the City of Ice. Hmm. And our uh, protagonist is a Chinese um, police officer. I call him an inspector just because that's a cool title. Hmm. But, but his official title is uh, deputy chief of a small police department in a township outside of Harbin, 40 or 50 miles outside of Harbin. Hmm. And um, he is like many fictional police officers or detectives an uh, essentially honest guy who seeks to um, mete out justice as best he can in an often unjust 
society or unjust political situation. Mm-hmm. So um, the series is uh, about him and the different things that he goes through. But my goal is really to use it not only to hopefully entertain and to tell a good story, but also to illuminate some of the interesting aspects of modern Chinese society and culture, politics, and economics, and to really use the setting uh, mm, and, and right. make it intrinsic to every plot. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I you do have a background in East Asian studies. And uh, and so I'm wondering, with, with your background and your interests, how you decided upon a protagonist, uh, this, this small small town, a small setting of a, of a police officer who's trying to do right and caught in a greater system behind him and the, the tensions that, and the relationship between that that lay out in the books. What, what in your background led you to wanting to come up with a narrative like this? Well, I studied, uh, I come from a small town in California and mm-hmm. there, you know, I, growing up, there wasn't much to do. This was before the internet <laughs> and cell phones and things like that. So I read a lot and books were really sort of my escape, my mm-hmm. way to, to get a picture into the wider world. And, uh, later when I went to college, I started to study Mandarin just sort of on a whim. Hmm. And that opened up a whole new world to me because the language and the culture are so intertwined. Uh, and I come from, you know, a very uh, homogeneous, uh, Amer- small town American background. So for mm-hmm. me to be steeped in the culture was something that was really interesting. And um, I, I just found it invigorating. So I ended up spending time overseas, living and working in Taiwan Mm-hmm. And majoring in Chinese cultural anthropology and studying mostly pre-modern history, Chinese uh, society and religion, just because it interested me. And then I spent the next, you know, couple decades of my life not doing anything with that. Uh, so, you know, I had to get a job. So I, I worked mm-hmm. in publishing and and wrote on the side. And at some point, I decided, you know, I I, I had always written. Um, but not very seriously. Mm-hmm. And I decided to get serious about it at some point. So I, I started writing, a, I, I had written screenplays. One of them was some, a screenplay called Kill Devil Falls, which is about a female U.S. marshal who gets trapped in this remote decommissioned mining town in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And uh, I turned that into a, a novel and that got published fairly quickly. Mm. And it went out of print fairly quickly mm-hmm. also. So, you know, I subsequently wrote several more books that didn't even get picked up by publishers until I happened upon the idea of, hey, why don't I leverage all these years I spent living and working abroad Mm. and try and do something a little bit unique and a little bit different. So in setting out to write these books, I wanted to not only use my academic background and my living experience, but I wanted to try and do something that I hadn't seen very many mystery or thriller writers do. There's lots of mystery or, or especially thriller spy novels that uh, touch on China or mm-hmm. have Chinese characters, but those are all from the perspective of Westerners. Mm-hmm. So I wanted, you know, as risky as it was, I wanted to uh, create a Chinese character who had a Chinese mindset, was relatable to a foreign audience, but still fundamentally a product of his culture and upbringing and 
uh, use that as you know a means to sort of delve into some of the more interesting aspects of Chinese culture and, and politics. Keeping in mind that mm-hmm. if you're writing a, a crime novel or a mystery novel, you're always dealing with bad people doing bad things. So you know that's something that you have to do. But I try to balance it out as much as possible by um, making well-rounded characters and uh, and you know trying to create um, believable uh, plot points and things like that. Mm, right. Yeah. And uh, that's uh, in, in reading, as I read through the books, it, one of the first things it reminded me of, I'm not sure if you're familiar with James Church's series, the Inspector O novels that take place in North Korea that, that really give a, a sense of North Korean culture and feel, at least I've never been there, but at least it puts me there in the context of this, uh, these, um, these kind of spy novels that are, that are taking place. And, uh, of course we're, we, we haven't gotten to, um, to Myanmar yet, but it's just kind of interesting to note that one of the, in, in Aung San Suu Kyi's longtime, um, house arrest, uh, and what she did during that, during all the time that she was alone, a little bit has come out with that. And one of the things that came up as her guilty pleasure was reading spy novels. And that's what she really <laughs> liked to do, uh, Agatha Christie and some of the other ones. So a little bit of a Myanmar connection there. But before we get into this novel, where part of it's set in Myanmar, just to stay in the China theme, where, um, and, and looking at, you know, this is a, you, you have experience in China, Chinese culture, politics, and society and such. And you're obviously small town um, Chinese uh, police detective who's the protagonist. And so in you, uh, you, you have a plot that's taking place in all of these stories and things that happen to the characters, but there's this deeper, richer background setting of wanting to impart certain things and features and knowledge about Chinese society, modern Chinese society, where it's going, where it's coming from, and some of those tensions inherent. So from your background of having lived in China and studied um, things about the country and society, what were some of those elements that you wanted to get across to the reader through the background of what was actually happening plot-wise? Yeah, good question. Um, I think I wanted to put a human face on uh, Chinese citizens for a foreign audience. So uh, keep in mind that Chinese society has been changing rapidly and continues to change rapidly. Uh, it wasn't so long ago that it was, um, you know, pre-communist period, then a post-communist period with a lot of upheaval and turmoil, then economic uh uh, changes which have caused their own kinds of upheavals and turmoil, and uh, now we're entering a new phase, you know, with a new leader and a new, even more autocratic uh, way of government um, and a top-down management system. But I remember and have noticed, uh, you know, traveling through China that the the Chinese populace is fed a pretty steady stream of anti-American propaganda. So, you know, even Chinese people joke, there's three uh, government broadcasts a day for an hour. The first half an hour is about how great China is. The second half an hour is about how terrible America is. Um, And, you know, Mm -hmm. they they acknowledge this. Meanwhile, you have something similar here in the U.S. I've seen, you know, certain political figures uh, use China. You always, when you're trying to control people, you always need an other, an enemy, somebody to rally the troops toward. 
And so that's something that I have seen of late in the United States. Now, I think both sides have some valid points and grievances, um, but it does become a tool in the hands of the government to keep uh, your populace sort of oriented to the outside instead of the inside. So one of the things I want to do was just kind of present a small town in -hmm. China in the hopes that I could talk about the uh, feelings and the emotions and the paradoxes and the grievances that your average Chinese citizen might right. have as they go through their day trying to feed themselves, have a mm-hmm. job, cut through red tape, all those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. it's, it's not a monolithic society where everybody sure. thinks or feels a certain way. And that was really one of the goals that I was setting out with these books. Mm, right. Yeah, that's great. So let's get to this. I think it's the second book in the series, Wild Prey, where the plot point leads the protagonist to Myanmar. And tell us how you landed on Myanmar as a plot point in this. Well, it's kind of convoluted as are, you know, probably all books. But essentially, um, as I mentioned before, my the cachet of these books, I guess, is that I'm really trying to leverage and use the setting in a unique way to create plots that couldn't take place anywhere else. It couldn't be in Milwaukee or Stockholm, for example. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm always looking for something that's kind of steeped in the culture and, uh, you know, the, and, and that I can then use to create fashion, some kind of interesting story. Um, I started writing this book during COVID. And so mm-hmm. I knew that I would have to address COVID in the book because you can't write a book set in China and just pretend COVID yeah, never right. existed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also knew that by the time this, or I hoped by the time this book come out, came out, that uh, COVID would have diminished in its importance and that people would not want to read about it. They wouldn't mm-hmm. want it to be a central plot point. They would be sick of it by that, mm-hmm. that time. Mm-hmm. So I kind of had to, to walk this tightrope of incorporating it in some fashion, but not doing it in too heavy a, a fashion. Mm-hmm. And because the, um, you know, the theory at the time was that COVID originated probably in a wet market where live animals were sold in Wuhan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I landed upon this idea of using illegal animal trafficking. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I can remember I went, the first time I went to China was 1987. And this mm-hmm. was before it opened up, things mm-hmm. were really different then. And I did go through a wet market and I can remember seeing oh. all sorts of exotic animals there in cages, you know, which mm-hmm. were, for food and medical purposes. And mm-hmm. the Chinese, like many cultures, have a long tradition of using herbs and animal products for medicinal reasons, some of which may be valid, some of which probably aren't. But, um, you know, it just seems something that was very intrinsically Chinese to talk about the illegal animal trade. And as I started to research that, um, you know, there's really a couple of hot spots. One, of course, would be Af- Africa for rhino horns and ivory and things like that. The other one is Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, that would be Vietnam, Thailand, and Myanmar, primarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more I researched it, the more I really uh, became enthralled with the idea of using Myanmar because it has a very, very strong Chinese connection, a fascinating Chinese connection, right. Chinese uh you know, citizens have been immigrating there for 200 years or more, yeah. setting up businesses and mm-hmm. remaining fairly ethnically Chinese. 
And then in the north, uh, right on the border, you have these, uh, you know, the Wa State Army, and you have these mm-hmm. very ethnic, uh, various ethnic enclaves, which are also uh, culturally Chinese. So mm-hmm. I just felt there was a, a good connection between the two countries. And that's that I just went down a wormhole. And that's where I ended mm-hmm. up eventually. Mm, right. Yeah, it was it, it's the as I mentioned to you before the interview, it's the first novel I've read that actually references the coup happening as a as a, a, a as a fact of the world and as a plot point. Um, and it's no surprise that it should. I mean, it's been two and a half years. But uh, although for those of us who are caught in the movement, it, it's kind of like this this um, timeless vortex where it feels like in one sense, it feels like it was just yesterday. And in other ways, it feels like this is all we've ever known in the way the, the resistance and the conflict has gone since. But it kind of reminded me of, I, I remember, um, you know, after 9-11, it was so surreal that happening. And it was, I don't remember what the first fiction, uh, fictional uh, reference to that was, but I, I do remember in, in some book and then in another time in a movie referencing that 9-11 had taken place. And it was like, it was really weird. It was really eerie to kind of be in a fictionalized world where this shocking thing in the real world was referenced the first time. And the feeling I had, it was, it was just a small reference, but just the feeling of reading a novel that referenced that a coup had taken place. It was like, well, you know, for me, it was like, wait a second, like that was really like, that's in a novel. And, you know, but then it's, yeah, it's been two and a half years. Of course, that, that's enough time for, um, for, for novels to come out in this way. It, it actually reminds me of, to not speak of novels, but there was a, a poetry book that came out about a year after the coup. Um, then we did a, a, I'm trying to remember the name of the book, um, Picking off, uh, picking off fresh shoots will not stop the spring, was what it was called. A reference to how the spring revolution is coming, and if you if you just pick off the fresh shoots, meaning you kill the the young activist, it's not going to stop the the revolution from coming. Spring's still going to come. Spring revolution is still going to come. And I remember talking to the the, the Brian Hammond, who was the um, who who had made the the anthology of the different um, print out there, we both commented upon how important it was to have uh, a physical book rather than a um, you know something online because it was it was just all the more real and tangible this this had happened. So that was just from me reading it. Just that small reference was brought brought that all back into the, just the reality of, of this happening now in fictionalized worlds too. But, uh, but getting back to your process of, um, of choosing this plot point and then researching, you, you just kind of inferred um, some of the research that you took to learn more about the um, Myanmar-China relations and, and the wild animal trafficking and, uh, and similarity with the societies and the border and such. So tell us a bit more about the research that you undertook and then what stood out to you as you were thinking about where the research that you were looking at would fit into the fabric of what you wanted to write in your narrative, what was standing out as things that you didn't know or things that were um, surprising or things that were just would fit into the story that you wanted to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, keep in mind that Wild Prey was written, you know, two more than two years ago, uh, you know, takes a year to write and it takes a year to come out. So uh, the coup was relatively fresh and I didn't really know where it would be going. And I just had that in the prologue where I tried to, again, put a human face on, you know, a citizen who's kind of caught up in the turmoil of uh, what it must be like to just to try to feed your family uh, uh, in uh, a place where the government has, you know, shut down universities, has mm-hmm. shot students in the street, has uh, 
maintained this isolationist central planning government system for years. Just when a democratic process was beginning, you know, shut it down. And just the desperation that uh, forces people to turn to things like poaching to make a living. So that's what mm. I kind of wanted to get at with that prologue is, you know, the guy in the beginning uh, who's uh, a poacher is not an evil person. He's right. just trying to do right by his family. Um, so, yeah, so I had probably, you know, because I've studied the region, was not unfamiliar with the history in a general mm -hmm. sense of Myanmar and um, the fact that it's uh, a fascinating place filled with lots of lots of different ethnicities who are constantly mm -hmm. agitating for a bit more autonomy, uh, <laughs> you know, which is arguably what led to the initial coup from, mm -hmm. from my understanding um, all those years of 1962, I guess it was. But from my standpoint of studying China, you know, it's this connection with uh, China, even to the extent that in 19. 50, you know, 1949, the communists ran the KMT out and around 1950, you had KMT mm -hmm. soldiers, the other side of that civil war, right. moving into North Myanmar and setting up a little enclave there. Yeah. And from my understanding, you know, their descendants are still there. Mm -hmm. um, and then as you research, uh, you know, the Wa State Army and the Shan State and things like that you come to understand that uh, it's a tangled web between China and Myanmar. So China is mm -hmm. kind of playing both ends against the middle. They support the central government, but they also support these uh, Chinese ethnic enclaves, which often mm -hmm. rebel against the central government right. and um, supply them with weapons and uh, tactical information and enjoy having kind of uh, – I guess they would that having some influence and a potential agitator in a, a different nation, you know, in their back pocket. So I just found it to be a very interesting political situation. And I get into that just a little bit in Wild Prey when um, our protagonist is sent down to try and find the source of uh, illegal animal trafficking and is told by a govern government minister that the Chinese government doesn't really have the will to um, shut shut all that down because they mm -hmm. are, you know, making use of these people who are engaged in illegal activities in Myanmar just for their own purposes. Um, yeah, so just really the the connection between China and Myanmar, and of course, it's a fascinating place with tragic history. Uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, and we all hope that. <laughs> that uh, things can change sometime in the near future. Mm, right. And getting to the Myanmar portion of the book, you you have uh, the, 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 the Burmese people, the ethnic people, they're definitely not Bamar, but the ethnic people that are involved in these criminal, criminal enterprises of uh, what they're, um, not just the animal trade, but the whole enclave and organization that they have there. It's not clear in the book, and that, that feels intentional in knowing exactly where they're located or which ethnic group they are. Uh, there, there is one character, kind of a female warlord leader that's probably described in more detail than any of the other ethnic characters there. But were you, uh, were you modeling this group and this leader 
off of particular people or was it just amorphous in terms of the, the general ethnic characters that you were researching or what were your what were your thoughts on how you were creating the uh those um that the portion of those people in Myanmar for the book mm-hmm. some of it was based on actual drug lords uh that have operated in that area um you know in the in the 70s and the 80s and uh some of it was uh, modeled on the Wa State Army apparatus that's there, mm-hmm. and then um, for the female warlord, you know, another th- another thing that I've tried to do in my books as much as possible is to um, pay respects and proper due to female characters whenever possible. So often, mm-hmm. if you're writing about China, for example, you know there aren't a lot of women in government. Uh, or in high uh, positions of power. And so you have to think of ways to incorporate female characters into your book, which shows that they're multidimensional characters, that they have some agency, that they're just not, you know, at the beck and whim of the men in society. So I kind of became enamored of this idea of a female warlord who has um, engaged in, a, in criminal behavior, but it's but what she's doing is kind of carving out a society for women in a very masculine uh, alpha male type world. So mm-hmm. she's got some motivations there to kind of rescue and rehabilitate lost women. And there are several, you know, role models. One is this woman I came across. Are you familiar with Olive Yang or Olive yeah. Yang? Yeah, yeah, there so, was a biography that just came out about her. Okay, so she's, you know, a fascinating person born in 1927, uh, non-binary, defined gender norms, right. a cross-dresser, mm-hmm. and led an army that called themselves Olive's Boys and called her Uncle Olive. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was uh, she was connected to the the KMT. She was connected to. Um, various rebels. She was connected to the CIA. She was involved in the drug business and Mm. just kind of a fascinating cultural figure. So, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, there are various people that, that I modeled uh, that character on, but nobody in particular. Mm, Right. And in terms of like the ethnic or geographic region, was there, was there anything on your mind or was it meant to just be kind of, um, kind of vague drawing upon the backdrop of the various characters of the different ethnic and regional places out there. Yeah. What it, you know, it gets confusing for an outsider to parse all the different ethnic groups, but I think I referenced that she had a Chinese father and a Thai mother, uh, Mm -hmm. Thai being a, um, ethnic group in Yunnan province. Um, so yeah, I didn't have anything specific in mind. I wanted her to be a bit of a mysterious character and a bit Mm -hmm. of a chameleon. And I think one thing that comes out in the book is is not just going to Myanmar and not and and not just the uh, the the fact and the the phenomenon of this border trade and the legal activities and the, um, the, the 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 trafficking of wild animals and such, but also there's a sense of like the the way that the different Chinese characters are thinking about Myanmar, you know, which it, to me kind of seemed um reminiscent of like the way some Americans might think about Mexico or something just just kind of a a dark place down south where 
there's different rumors and fears and 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 even attractions to what that offers and the different chinese characters have have different levels of knowledge about myanmar and also different different feelings about what the country is to them so as someone who is more china centric and has spent more years in uh, studying China and being aware of um, of Chinese culture and people, what what feeling? How would you characterize what the kind of average feeling on the street is? The and and, and obviously it's not monolithic, but just the varying shapes that it can take of kind of that Chinese. As, as your protagonist is not a high government official, but is just kind of a normal dude. That's that's what, how you've made him um, of kind of the normal dude feeling of a range of Chinese perceptions of what Myanmar represents, something that's so close and that they've had these longstanding ties for so long. How would you characterize how that comes across? Well, uh, not to get too wonky about it, I think your average Chinese citizen doesn't think too much about Myanmar. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the Chinese government does because of the resources there and because it's strategic location, it's locate its proximity to the Indian Ocean, things like they're always looking for ports and, and things like that for military reasons, which is probably why they support uh, the, the Myanmar government. But sure. um, your average citizen uh, doesn't really think about it too much. However, in the South, um, you have this interesting scenario where uh, parts uh, like border towns became like a Las Vegas. I refer to that in yeah, the book. Yeah. What one particular town, Mong La, mm-hmm. in, uh, just across the border, they actually will have. They I don't know if they currently have this, but they would have busloads of Chinese tourists, mostly men, who would go down there and uh, get on a bus and cross into Mong La, where they would drink um, tiger bone wine. Mm-hmm. They're you know. Uh, gamble and, uh, you know, uh, pick up prostitutes, basically. Mm -hmm. And I read somewhere, you know, a lot of the research I did was reading um, accounts by journalists, reading Mm -hmm. some government documents, you know, public, uh, I don't have any secret access or anything, just, you know, reading what I could. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of funny, they would talk about how uh, these gambling establishments rose up and Chinese citizens were going down there and losing lots of money. And so Mm -hmm. that particular area, the power comes through China. And Mm -hmm. when uh, things got too bad, the Chinese government would just shut the power down. So all the Mm -hmm. gambling establishments would have to shut down for a couple of weeks and the tourists wouldn't go there. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I I think uh, probably most Chinese citizens don't think about it, but if they do, it's it's this um, connotation of oh, this is a vague. This is Tijuana, like you you yeah, had it right. Yeah. It's Tijuana. You know, you can get uh, animal products there. You can get ivory. You can get uh, young girls. Uh, mm-hmm. You can eat all kinds of things that you can't legally eat in China. So yeah, that's probably what they're thinking. Yeah, and definitely as the protagonist realizes gradually more and more with the turning of every page that he's going to have to actually go there himself, you, you, there's this kind of Wild West terror mm-hmm. that starts to come over him, especially. And, that, and to be fair, that's, not, that's probably more um, characterizing those northern Myanmar regions that are not really – um, have any authority that the, the the Bamar government in Yangon or Napida as it is now doesn't have any authority over, but, mm-hmm. but the the more lawless territories that he's going to. 
Yeah. 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 I, unfortunately, I didn't have time to go. You know, like I said, when you write a crime novel, you're writing about bad people doing bad things. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you have to be conscious of, especially as a Westerner writing about the East. Um, and that's why I endeavor as much as possible to create characters that are well-rounded and to also always have some, you know, a, a motivation and a positive aspect even to my villains. Very few of my villains are just 100% bad. They always have mm. a reason for doing what they're doing. And I always try to provide some you know, kind of human faucet to their personality. Yeah, I, I mentioned James Church before. I realized another name I left out that it reminded me of uh, is uh, John Burdett and his uh, his Bangkok series that definitely bring out the, the vices of, um, of Bangkok and Thai life and society and uh, individuals that are kind of working within that. Yeah, his books do. I, you know, uh, I really liked Bangkok Eight. The other books weren't as good, but Bangkok yeah. Eight was kind of a revelation because I thought he did a phenomenal job of creating a mindset that transitioned the East and the West. Mm-hmm, his protagonist, mm-hmm. uh, and I thought his protagonist, the way his protagonist uh, described the world in Buddhist terms, yeah, yeah, uh, was really fascinating and uh, unique. Yeah, I, I agree. I also thought the series went on uh, that, that didn't really know what to do with it as the books went on. But I thought the first couple books, I think Bangkok Tattoo was the first one I read, even though it was the second book. And it just blew me away. I mean, just as a as a Westerner who had a longstanding interest in, in Buddhism and especially Asian Buddhism and as, as someone who had spent half my life living in Asia and largely in Myanmar and Japan – the the way that he was able to care to 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 have a character that was part of both worlds, not just physically, but also in his psyche, and the way he was able to express that, and and to really get at kind of those subtle interactions of uh, of, of Thai society and and how different Eastern and Western ways looked at that. Yeah, it, it blew me away, and it, that was actually kind of the hook that started me getting into more of these. Uh, crime novels that were taking place uh, and well, crime novels outside of America, I was going to say in Asia specifically, and that's true, but also just starting to see the crime novel as a vehicle for not just plot, but for where you placed it and how you can, as you did, how you can, you can have these other elements of context and culture coming into it. Yeah. And that, that is exactly what I was trying to do is create a character that was relatable but also very much a product of where he comes from Hmm. and uh, that uh, is a way to explore, you know, a different mindset, uh, provide a window as much as possible, keeping in mind that there's only so much you can do in a novel, especially a novel, which is plot driven and action driven Hmm. and things like that. So yeah, that's very much uh, been my goal as well. Yeah, that's great. I really appreciate the time in hearing about this. And uh, again, to uh, listeners, the book is Wild Prey that we're talking about. And for those listeners that want to find out more about you, what uh, links or social media accounts would you guide them to? Uh, I have a Twitter account, but I also have a website. It's brianklingborg.com, just B-R-I-A-N-K-L-I-N-G-B-O-R-G. Com. So that's where I keep all my updated reviews, interviews, and things like that. Mm, great. And we'll also be referencing those in the show notes so people can get there with just a click. So yeah, with that, thanks for taking the time to chat with us and talk about this book in particular and your understanding of uh, Chinese-Burmese relations and how that came out in, in this narrative. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. 
We want to take a moment to introduce you to our nonprofit Better Burma's online shop, which features handicrafts sourced from artisan communities scattered throughout Myanmar. Far from being mass-produced knockoffs, the pieces we offer are unique and handmade, reflecting the wide diversity of different peoples found throughout the country. When Myanmar experienced its transition period, moving from democracy in the late 2010s after decades of harsh military dictatorship, many Burmese craftspeople hoped their beautiful work could finally be appreciated beyond the country. When Myanmar experienced its transition period, moving towards democracy in the late 2010s after decades of harsh military dictatorship, many Burmese craftspeople hoped their beautiful work could finally be appreciated beyond the country's borders. But sadly, this was not to be so. Following the military coup, many skilled artisans suddenly found all possibility of continuing their livelihood closed off and began struggling just to feed their families. With this in mind, we prioritize working with artisans from disadvantaged and vulnerable backgrounds because we know just how hard it can be to survive at the margins of society in Myanmar. This includes such people as those with disabilities, mothers who have contracted HIV AIDS, civil servants on CDM, ethnic and religious minorities, and more. To view these wonderful pieces, please visit alokacrafts.com. That's aloka, A-L-O-K-A, crafts, C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Otherwise, please consider a donation through our usual channels. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go on to support a wide range of humanitarian and media missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Refugee Camps, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution to a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org, and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit card. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we can take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either website for specific links to these respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. That's betterburma, one word, spelled B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A.org. If you would like to give it another way, please contact us. We also invite you to check out our range of handicrafts that are sourced from vulnerable artisan communities across Myanmar, available at alokacrafts.com. Any purchase will not only support these artisan communities, but also our nonprofit's wider mission. That's Aloka Crafts, spelled A-L-O-K-A-C-R-A-F-T-S, one word, alokacrafts.com. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support.
What about you? I don't know how you're not. I do you don't know the gun is out of my way. Got a busy and a busy. Oh, by Yaranda, Diana, and I, Yaranaya, Diana, and Boda, Yaranam.